Well, um, welcome everybody. Uh, it's great to, great to have you all with us, uh, albeit remotely. So I would like to just give you a quick introduction to our panel of speakers. Uh, we have Lydia Furs, uh, Tom Weir and Jan Decomte with us. Um, and all of them are addressing the central theme of this panel, which is sporting inequalities. They're doing this in quite different ways, different themes and focuses. Um, but what kind of unites them all, I think, is a focus on sporting communities or contexts, perhaps, that are in some way othered. Um, and that uh, through their work, they're trying to disrupt some of the, uh, what still sadly is a bit of a default position, I think, in a lot of sport history and a position that is white, that's male and that is able-bodied. Um, so I think uh, without further ado, we should uh, get going with our first speaker, uh, Lydia Furs. Um, Lydia is a fourth year, a final year, sorry, PhD student uh, working on a collaborative partnership between De Montfort University and the World Rugby Museum and working on a, a cultural history of women's rugby uh, with quite scary parameters like global and I think from like mid-19th century more or less to present which is pretty horrifying to me um, but uh, immensely impressive and um, very much looking forward to hearing uh, from Lydia so over to you. Thanks Lisa. Um, can everybody hear me and see me? Can you give me a thumbs up or something? Perfect. Um, so yeah, as Lisa said, I'm kind of speaking to the inequalities of um, gender in sport and particularly focusing on women's rugby. And I'm going to be looking today at the surprising and different and the problems of, ass of assuming a relationship between women's rugby and feminism. Um, how do you make this slide move on? There we go. As recently as 1996, journalist Max Davidson presented women playing rugby as part of a feminist attack on male hegemonic traditions. Davidson framed women's rugby as a radical and therefore unsavory activity. In his view, women's rugby was an equality too far, um, which interestingly riffs off Jean Williams' assessment of women's football. In Britain, the media portrayed women's rugby as transgressive, competing against a conservative male hegemonic establishment, and therefore aligned women's rugby with the women's liberation movement. Yet, rugby playing women publicly and vehemently denied feminist intentions, a trend noted in recent academic scholarship using all history methods to research female participation in a variety of male-dominated sports. This presents an ethical dilemma for historians who seek to reposition female athletes within the wider social movements of the late 20th century. Both Lyndon and Nicholson have also written on this issue, carefully acknowledging the conflict between their interpretation and their narrator's self-identities, but ultimately positioning the experiences of their subjects as part of wider contemporaneous women's rights campaigns. The lack of sportswomen in mainstream feminist history has also been redressed in a recent oral history book on the women's liberation movement by Margareta Jolie, who includes an interview with Sue Lopez, a star footballer of the 1970s. Lopez is described as a no-nonsense woman who was not necessarily overtly feminist, but was an undoubted campaigner and a rare voice from the period. 
However, Lopez does not evoke a relationship between second wave feminism, viewing her activism to promote women's football from the 1970s onwards as different and separate. So while women's participation in traditionally male-dominated sports can be viewed as part of a liberal feminist agenda, particularly through the mantra of the personal as political, sportswomen denied associations to contemporary women's rights campaigns. The actions of pioneering sportswomen contributed to a movement for equal opportunities in sport, but the widespread rejection of feminist labels problematizes any simple discussion of women's sport as feminist. Historians therefore have a duty to avoid projecting feminism onto the past, particularly when feminist interpretations of life narratives conflicts with the narrator's self-identity. As such, feminist sport historians need to consider alternative historiographical methods to respect their narrator's identity and simultaneously empower pioneering sportswomen's activism within the male-dominated world of sport. Now, I'm not suggesting today that I have the answers to this problem. I want to put forward how this problem has evolved within my research and one potential solution that I'm considering and hopefully invoke a little bit of debate at the end and look at future research and ways in which we could reach a consensus or other alternative options. So to give a little bit of the historical context of this debate, before the 1960s, feminists on both sides of the Atlantic proposed that physical education for women would increase equality between the sexes. The link between physical emancipation and women's rights had first been noted in 19th century texts, such as Mary Wollstonecraft's A Vindication of the Rights of Woman and Elizabeth Cady Stanton's The Lily. Simone de Beauvoir, whose influential work Le Deuxième Sex, prefigured what has been termed second wave feminism, described female athletes as those who, being positively interested in their own game, feel themselves least handicapped in comparison with the male. And the late 20th century's women's sport revolution occurred contemporaneously with the women's liberation movement. So there is an evident relationship between women's sport and feminism. Yet, British feminists did not embrace sport. In 1983, Jan Graydon noted that many feminists believed sport to be irrelevant or at best peripheral to promoting women's rights. In 1988, Margaret Talbot also critiqued the delayed interest in women's sport amongst British feminists, comparing it negatively to the United States, where Title IX had focused academic and public interest in sport as a site of politicised gender struggle. So, on the one hand, British feminism tended to marginalise women's sport, but on the other, there are numerous temporal and theoretical overlaps between women's sport and feminism, which has led to feminist sport historians seeking to redress this marginalization and position women's sport within the wider social movement. But we need to ask the question about to what extent is this appropriate? And I just want to uh, warn viewers that the next image may elicit a strong emotional response from some. Michael Burke takes up the question of to what extent it's appropriate to associate women's sport and feminism in his article, Is Football Now Feminist? He argues that women participating in male-dominated sport is not inherently feminist. 
while women's sport has a latent feminist potential, female participation needs to be paired with transformative agency. The same kind of critiques can be posed of Margaret Thatcher. While certainly a pioneer in politics, her feminist credentials leave a lot to be desired. She's emblematic of how the pioneering role of historically significant women can lead to feminist interpretations of their actions, regardless of the actor's personal motivations. In this vein, pioneering sportswomen cannot be pigeonholed as feminist, especially against their will. The question can be recentered by thinking about how sportswomen were perceived as feminist and how this impacted their actions. You can see here that the British media presented women's rugby as an encroachment upon male space, thereby ascribing feminist motivations to rugby playing women, just like in the opening quote. So while the media pushed this comparison between women's rugby and feminism, mediatized sportswomen rejected any relationship to the women's liberation movement or second wave feminism. Um, Sarah George, at just 18 years old, was one of the first female referees in rugby union, reportedly stated in 1983, but I am not one of the boys and not a women's liber either. I want to remain feminine. The article went on to assert that she did have a boyfriend and there's this underlying tone that there's an association between what she understands as women's lib as being unfeminine and potentially not heterosexual. Trisha Moore, WRFU press secretary, so uh, press secretary for the governing body of women's rugby in Great Britain in the early 1980s. She regularly spoke out against the assumption of feminist motivations for female rugby players. And her view was repeated by numerous players at the community level, like Deirdre Mills, and at the elite level, even as recently as 2020, when former England women's rugby captain Catherine Spencer denied a feminist identity. Catherine Spencer addressed her problematic relationship with feminism in her autobiography, Mud More Mascara. And I quote, I never considered myself a feminist, she stated, and I am still hesitant to do so now. I am probably more of a subtle suffragette, though I feel strongly and passionately about helping to ensure that there is equality of opportunity. In the classic, I'm not a feminist, but construction, Spencer demonstrates her reluctance to identify with feminism, although she espouses many values common to liberal feminism. So rugby players consistently protested, rejected and denied a feminist identity. This rejection was also evident when it came to my experience conducting oral history interviews. Only one interviewee out of the 10 UK based women's rugby players and administrators of the 1980s and 1990s spontaneously used the term feminist. The striking absence of self-identification with feminism across the interviews was compounded by the overt rejection from the one player who directly confronted the term. Jill Burns, England women's rugby captain between 1994 and 1999, pictured here, used the word feminist to describe the work of Paul Morgan, former editor of Rugby World, because he included women's rugby in the magazine. But when asked, do you see women's rugby as part of or an extension of, in, in some way, a feminist outlet? Jill responded with a succinct, no. 
after an hour of flowing dialogue and laughter, Burns's monosyllabic response was in a different tone to the preceding conversation. In her opinion, women's rugby was not feminist. She concluded that rugby is a sport and it's for everybody. So my research on women's rugby therefore replicates findings by other sports historians, namely an outright denial of feminist motivations. I want to now explore some of the reasons why sportswomen rejected a feminist identity. I think there's several different factors that contributed to women's rugby players distancing themselves from feminism. First of all, this supposed connection between women's rugby and feminism was pushed in the media and it kept women's rugby on the interest or social pages of the newspapers. Women's rugby players expressed their concern that the gender debate was detracting from their sporting endeavours. They wanted to highlight that they were achieving as athletes rather than politicised transgressive women. Secondly, we need to consider the pragmatic implications Considering that women's rugby was particularly reliant upon male-dominated and male-orientated organisations for essential resources, such as coaches, referees and playing spaces. Similarly, Nicholson has stated that the Women's Cricket Association pragmatically adopted a softly-softly approach to their male counterparts during the 1970s, rejecting associations with radical feminism in order to facilitate negotiations with male stakeholders. And Lisa Taylor has noted more broadly across women's sports that a reliance upon male institutions influences the ideology of the women's organisations. So it was expedient for women's rugby, especially in the early days, to cultivate an anti-feminist image. Finally, the negative public perception of the women's liberation movement may also have inhibited women's rugby players from identifying with feminism. In 1981, Mary Ingham described the image of women's lib in the popular press as man-hating, unfeminine extremist. And we've already seen this in Sarah George's young response to accusations of being unfeminine by being a rugby referee. We need to take into account as well, the public discourse of homophobia within women's sport, particularly as accusations of sexual deviancy were used to police gender transgressive behaviour. So the association between feminism and man-hating lesbians was not an image that sportswomen actively promoted. As such, we could view a rejection of feminist identity as part of a heteronormative apologetic behaviour, demonstrating instead how playing rugby did not affect their generally gender-conforming behaviour. So the body of evidence suggests that pioneering sportswomen largely reject feminist labelling, but most feminist sports history has conceived of their actions as part of the movement towards equal opportunities. For me, the vocal denial or resounding silence on the topic of feminist identity in the oral history interviews conducted with former women's rugby players and administrators leaves little interpretive space in which to present the narrators as feminist. Basically, I'm a bit scared of these amazingly powerful women who've given me their stories and I don't want to undermine that trust by labelling them something that they've rejected. 
Articulating sportswomen's activism as social justice rather than an extension of feminism could be one solution to this methodological problem of identifying sportswomen with the feminist movement that they've rejected. The term social justice was articulated by one of my interviewees, Sue Brody, um, as you can see here. She framed her activism in support of women's rugby as a fight for equality, but chose the term social justice instead of feminism. Brody reiterates the idea of fighting for social justice using language very similar to women's rights campaigns. She frames her actions as a fight against inequalities within rugby, one small aspect of the visible sex discrimination in British society. In this sense, Brody was conscious that rugby was more than just a game. Although the phrase does not appear in each oral history interview, all the narrators use the language of social justice to describe their activism on behalf of women's rugby, even when they reject feminist labels. Social justice therefore provides an alternative terminology that respects the narrator's understanding of their own life stories. Social justice moves beyond positioning pioneering women as unconscious or unwitting feminists, creating a matrix by which historians can examine sportswomen's agency in relation to feminism, highlighting both the similarities and the striking differences and allowing us to critique sportswomen for not being feminist whilst also empowering their narrative. Because for me, that's one of the most important things that I'm trying to do, recover an unvoiced story and empower those female voices. So the inspiration for today's presentation arose from this ideological and methodological problem that I've been facing. And I'm really hoping that by exploring the subject today, um, we can invoke a lively debate and perhaps future avenues of research and collaboration in the future. Social justice is one alternative that I've come to, which suits my research agenda as it comes from one of my narrators. But I'm hoping that this presentation has highlighted that this is not just a problem within women's rugby, but an issue experienced by researchers working on various sports, um, both in the United Kingdom and in America. Um, and it would be great to look at future projects to try to reach a consensus. I'm not trying to simply replace the term feminism with social justice, because I find that very problematic as well. But I'm wanting to create a distance between women's sport, particularly women's rugby and feminism, so that the differences, the similarities and the relationship between the two can really be examined. I just do want to make it clear that this is more than a problem of labelling. Avoiding projecting feminism onto the past should not come at the expense of highlighting the historical relationship between the two at various different times, particularly looking back 100 years ago, or undermine the latent feminist potential of female participation in sport, which, let's be honest, we still have a long way to go um, to get that to be a proper part of the contemporary sporting agenda. Thank you. Thank you. Ever so much for that, Lydia. Really thought-provoking um, stuff. I've already um, got got um, got people clamouring to ask you questions. Um, so before I um, ask you all the questions that I want to ask you, <laughs> then um, I'm going to ask um, Raf Nicholson if she wants to uh, come in on this. Hi, Lydia. 
Um, what an amazing presentation. Um, I loved it from beginning to end. Um, so thank you so much. Um, now, as you obviously will be aware, but I'll just explain for other people, in my book, I, I've kind of come down about women's cricket. I've kind of come down on the opposite side of this um, and sort of have decided to, to label them as feminists. Um, so, yeah, interesting. I think we, to some extent, actually disagree, therefore. Um, but I, I hear what you're saying. Um, is, there, is there kind of something problematic, actually, about trying to, as you, as you say, sort of create a distance between um, women's sport and feminism? Shouldn't we kind of, as feminist activist historians, be trying to bring them back together um, and actually very gently... Um, and in a totally non-patronising way, actually be saying, well, some of the stuff that you were doing, guys, was actually quite feminist. Um, and so is, it, is, is there a kind of problematic element um, to what you're suggesting in that we're actually pushing two things apart that really um, weren't as far apart as maybe um, they, they thought they were, if that makes sense? Yeah, completely. And I understand that this is a problem problematic situation and I kind of wanted to play devil's advocate in a way because the majority of feminist sports historians such as yourself seem to have gone down the route of this is feminism just they're not using that term and I completely agree with the understanding behind that of why you'd want to do that and for the political expediency of of now that we need to show that women's sport and feminism can go hand in hand but for me, I think creating a little bit that distance allows us to critique the fact that for women's rugby in particular, it was like looking at it again, I, I am a feminist and I'm a women's rugby player and I play it for a lot of feminist reasons, but it's really interesting to me to see that they were not feminist and the way they were rejecting feminist identity, at least publicly, and showing that consistently and publicly there was an anti-feminist and a, and a homophobic rhetoric which was not necessarily the case on the ground so creating that distance is allowing me to look at those areas with a little bit more sort of freedom if you like and also that sense of being honest to my interviewees because it's their words and I feel I feel more of a problem imposing my interpretation on their words than um, than not, if that makes sense. I'd, um, I'd, I've got another question lined up, but I, I'd just like to weigh in as well because it's um, I, I sit and I feel like the three of us all are grappling with this issue, right? And I think not least because of oral history and what you're talking about, Lydia, the responsibility, a different responsibility that you feel towards a human source than you do to a written one. Um, I, for me then uh, I, I think your the the social justice um, framework is a really interesting solution I can see that how that serves I can see the role that that kind of would, could serve and how that would how that could further the kind of interpretation that you want to do I suppose my question if I were being devil's advocate um, because in my research again I see no overt engagement with feminist language rhetoric identity is um, whether the question of intention actually is an important one and if you are consciously aware of the ways in which you're disrupting gender norms or expectations when you go onto a rugby pitch or step into a boat or onto a cricket pitch that maybe that is kind of different and so even if you could say well by playing rugby or cricket or whatever it might be 
that that changes the public consciousness that changes a media dialogue all that stuff which i i think is i wouldn't want to dispute that but whether your action itself isn't isn't there something about the intention that makes it social justice or feminism or whatever ism you want to add to it it isn't that a more fundamental question than the label yeah i completely understand where where you're coming from and it is this problem of am I being pernickety about language but the language means quite a lot to my interviewees and that's why I've been grappling with the issue but also thinking about it has given me the distance to to step back and critique their lack of feminist political motivations and almost what you were saying about whether it's intentional or not their actions perpetuate or made changes that's almost the perception of their actions or the media reception of their actions or, um, you know, the uses of um, legal repairs such as the Gender Equality Act in sport. And I think it's important to keep those separate from the player's intentions, especially when we have the privilege to access some of those intentions from, yeah, yeah from sources. So. No, I, I completely agree with that. And it's then, yeah, this treading this difficult line between yeah what you're what you're willing to ascribe to their behaviors that they don't that they don't articulate right yeah um I, I could happily have this conversation um for a long time but i'm actually going to um stop abusing my position as chair and ask malcolm mclean for his his question please um thanks lisa thanks thanks lydia um i'm, I'm, I'm giving you a thumb up and just in case you can't see me uh i actually want to riff off um something that Lisa said there in her quick, quick question about feeling a sense of obligation to our living interviewees that we may not feel to um, a written source. And I don't think we do have a different ob obligation to, uh, to, to, to our sources, who, who, whoever they are, even though we feel we may have one, which opens up to me what I think you're talking about here, which is the risk of false consciousness or the risk of attributing false consciousness to, uh, to, to any source, but in this case, a living source who can answer back, uh, which, is, which, is, which, is, which is where the difference becomes really important, alongside the question of agency. So what I'm quite interested in here is whether you asked your interviewees whether although they reject the label, they might concede that their actions have feminist consequences. Thanks for that question, Malcolm. And you've definitely caught me out in a hole here because I think that one of my major failings in conducting my oral histories is that I wasn't confident enough to broach this term head on in the same way that like reading your PhD, Raf, and your books that you very much did approach those conversations head on. I chose instead to tackle my difficult topics around sexuality and personal questions like that. So I didn't then follow up with more personal questions about feminism what i would love to hear interest from the from the group is is whether you go back to people and speak to them about your interpretations because i am in the situation of um like the first podcast that we did for the um the ssh actually i was speaking a lot about the second women's rugby world cup organized by sue Brody, who you saw in this presentation and she listened to that podcast and gave me feedback on it, on my interpretation of her historical actions. Um, so there is a bit of a, a potential for dialogue there, and I'd be interested to know what people feel about that. But to come back to your very first point, Malcolm, I completely agree that we shouldn't be ascribing false consciousness to 
events and it really frustrates me that there's a debate going on at the moment in sports history about Alice Milliat's feminist intentions because she has there are many written sources where she's explicitly <laughs> ascribed feminist potential or feminist motivations and those seem to be undermined somehow by certain historians just seem to not want to see those and I think when there are explicit feminist intentions we should recognize those and in that same vein I want to recognize the explicit anti-feminist intentions of my interviewees. Well, if, if I can answer your question there, then the, the, the advantage of having live, live sources is we can go back and ask them those things in, in ways that we can't with, 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 with the written sources. So I think it's entirely proper to go back and follow up those, the, those inquiries with, with, with the people that you've been, you've been talking with, if you wanted an answer. Um, we have just uh, a couple of minutes left. Um, there are a couple of questions in the chat, one from uh, just Daniel Svensson and one previously from, oh, I'm just scrolling through, I can't find it, but it was about Brazil. Um, I wonder if I can um, combine them a little bit and say what international comparisons have you looked at or what, what might you be able to talk about that you think is specific to the British context and or what you found in comparison to anywhere else? Um, thanks Lisa because um, I've decided to focus today on, on the British um, side of things but um, there is a different story in terms of women's rugby in America. It started or has a relationship with, with feminism quite explicitly and that shifts during the 1980s as the there's a conservative backlash against feminism. Women's rugby ends up presenting less of an overtly feminist public face um, in terms of media sources and things that they're putting out into the world. But there's a bit of a gap in my research in that I haven't followed up with as many interviewees from America as I would like to, to say that for sure. In terms of New Zealand, the relationship between women's rugby and feminism is really interesting in the 1980s because we've got a lot of um, movement against rugby as a male hegemonic sport and particularly as um, a racist organisation because of continuing relations with South Africa at that time. And so the understanding of women playing rugby as either reproducing that agency so being part of a system that has a lot of negativities and therefore should be it can't be considered feminist goes up against women who were participating in rugby in order to experience physical emancipation and get physical enjoyment and to be seen as equal to their male peers and so did view their activity in women's rugby as feminist um, finally, there's research by Catherine Louveau in terms of France, which, talk, um, which did interviews with um, lots of different sportswomen. And interestingly, there was women's rugby um, participants in that research, and she explicitly asked whether they were feminist or not. And none of the participants, very few of the sportswomen identified as feminist at all, only three wrestlers out of her sample of about 30 respondents I think um, and, eat, and all of those were French wrestlers um, responded as feminists none of the women's footballers none of the women's rowers none of the sailors none of the rugby players so I think there's some interest in looking at whether sports identify as feminist openly or not and looking at the reasons why and looking at the differences between those as well.
yeah uh, that sounds incredible um please make that happen over <laughs> uh, <laughs> over to you um thank you so much lydia i'm going to i'm afraid i'm going to have to ask you to um uh step off the step off the platform um but thank you so much for such a thought-provoking presentation and to our um to the room for some very interesting questions um but on we must and so next up we have tom weir um uh, Tom, feel free to unmute when you're ready. Uh, Tom is a fourth year PhD student also at DMU um, and he works on questions of disability and sport um, and uh, yeah we are uh, excited to hear from him today. Uh, I can see that he's putting up his introductory slides so I won't bore you with the same information twice. I should just hand over to Tom. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll let everyone just absorb that um, quickly. I uh, thank you for the introduction, Lisa. Um, uh, first thing I did want to ask is uh, if anyone has any trouble with with reading slides, uh, whether it's the colour or just just reading in general, do drop me a private message because I'm happy to to narrate my slides. Um, otherwise, I'm going to give where I have quite text heavy slides. I'm going to give everyone a little bit of time just to read them through. Um, but uh, as you can appreciate working in um, or, or sort of having been to sort of various disability conferences, I know there are people who have difficulty with reading slides. I'm obviously very happy to accommodate that. Um, I thought I'd open actually just with, with asking everyone just to, to kind of ask a little question actually about themselves. Um, I'm also going to press play on my slides. So that would probably be quite useful, um, which is why do we as human beings uh, and, and as individuals take part in sport? Um, I'm not necessarily asking you to think about the sort of bigger picture here and, and why you think we do as society. I'm, I'm actually just as an individual, have a think, what is it that makes you personally take part in sport? Because um, I think this is a very personal question to a lot of the things that I'm going to be talking about. Um, I can tell you all of my motivations to taking part in sport. Uh, that will come up. We'll, we'll come on to that later because I think they align absolutely beautifully with, with one of the people that I interviewed. Um, but that's what I want to start and, and get everyone just thinking about because it will come up. Um, I haven't got a, a written paper as I normally end up uh, doing. I haven't got a written paper or a particularly manicured presentation. I wanted to talk uh, about some of the key takeaways that uh, are in my thesis, which is slowly, slowly getting finished. And I know Matt's on the call. It will get done eventually, I promise. Um, but the pandemics have a way of sort of setting timelines back slightly. Um, but my my kind of three really kind of crucial takeaways that I found from looking at uh, the development of learning disability sport or intellectual disability sport, uh, as I'll also refer to it in, in Britain, are that firstly, it was a really central part of normalisation. I'm going to give a definition for this in the next slide. Um, but this was a way that, uh, and sport was used as a way, consciously used as a way of helping integrate people with learning disability into society. Um, it was also a very, very key part of their leading normal lives. It was a chance to be independent. It was about them being able to make a conscious choice about what they chose to do. And it was also an opportunity for them to make genuine friends, not just have people that they existed around. Um, lesser conclusion than, than an observation, and I'll talk about this briefly, but women play a very, very important role, uh, particularly in, in mental handicap sport, learning disability sport, ID sport. Uh, and I will talk about that for a slide. And finally is 
this concept of physical advocacy um, that uh, and there's there's echoes of this in what I was hearing with Lydia's presentation as well this idea that sport can actively change minds about people um, for disability this is front and center very often of what people are actually trying to achieve when they're organizing disability sport it is known it is recognized it is used as part of, of what they're organizing um, and that is that by people with disability particularly learning disability showing their achievement showing their ability in something that is universally understood like sport that they're able to give themselves a better status within the society that they're supposed to be being adopted as, as part of um, normalization then I'll, I'll give you 30 seconds just to have a quick read um, of that this is the definition of, of normalization put forward in, in 1969 And I mean, the idea of what is normal actually is, is very pertinent at the moment, given that uh, A, we're currently doing something that last year was definitely not normal. Um, B, we're all discussing in society what our new normal is going to be. And I would sort of put it to you that what I can't necessarily tell you what normal is, but I can tell you what not normal is. Um, and not normal is having a limited freedom of movement. Uh, not normal is, is being permanently supervised by your five-month-old golden retriever whenever you're doing emails. Um, that's not the case for most people, I realise. That's not a universal experience. Um, but not normal is, is definitely a lack of human interaction. And not normal is, is an over-medicalisation of actions uh, that, that we're undertaking. And I think we've all experienced that in the last six months. Um, that, that is a pretty universal experience for most people. and. Um, What's definitely not been normal for me is that we haven't, I haven't been able to go out and play sport. I haven't been able to go out, meet my friends and, and do something that I consider to be absolutely at the root of what I consider to be normal, which is going down to my rugby club, getting my face caved in um, and then going and having a beer afterwards. Um, oh, how's my presentation? No, there we go. Um, so to go back to those three criteria of what weren't normal, uh, which was that idea of limited freedom of movement, limited human interaction and an over-medicalisation of actions. All of this was occurring for people with disabilities when they were put in institutions. And institutions were, prior to 1960, at least in Britain, they were considered to be the way that we should be treating people with learning disability uh, in this country or mental handicappers uh, and other sort of various epithets that they were labelled with. Um, it was only ever the case for around about half the population uh, as Jan Wormsley points out, but it was the dominant narrative behind how society was meant to be treating them. Um, but sport was an, was an important part of this. And um, if you can actually sort of see, I know my photography skills are absolutely appalling on this, but um, these were taken at the Normansfield Archive, uh, which is in, uh, over in West London. And you will see a football pitch, you will see tennis courts. And if you can make out on that tiny text, they are using their sports facilities, their, their sort of copious acreage as a selling point for why you should send your son, your daughter, your family member to that institution. So uh, sport is considered a, an important part of institutional life. So it is ingrained in that. Um, but very often it comes with this narrative that they are being controlled, that they are burning off energy. It's not about care and it's not about what's actually right. And it's not about those people within the institution uh, doing something that is normal. It's, it's very much about how we can use this 
to control them or to, to, to keep them kind of safe and, and, and healthy, but ultimately within uh, the parameters of the, the institution. Um, some of the early sports clubs started to help change this and uh, organisations, you, you, unless you've been to one of my talks before, you'll have unlikely, uh, be unlikely to have heard of Cardiff Chameleons. Um, but this was founded in 1959. This is the very, very first club for people specifically with mental handicap, as it was at the time, uh, founded by a fantastic woman called Joyce Robinson, uh, who, if anyone is looking for a historical project, um, founded by Joyce Robinson deliberately to challenge the idea that it was not safe, that it was not healthy for those children with mental handicap in society to be taking part in sport. That was still the dominant narrative. That was something she wanted to challenge straight from the off. And I believe successfully did so. Um, they also uh, deliberately sort of united with one of the local hospitals, Ely Hospital. They were having patients coming from the hospital to the club as part of helping them kind of reach out to the community and the community and the hospital coming closer together. Um, this was even more pertinent in, uh, from 1973 when the chameleons were actually hosted on the hospital grounds. Uh, so they fundraised, they built a pool on the grounds. Um, and this is a, a very good sort of example of how uh, during this, the time of deinstitutionalization, so from the 1960s onwards, the hospitals are starting to close slowly. They're trying to reintegrate people with mental handicap back into the community. And sports clubs going into the hospitals, hospitals visiting sports clubs was a very important way that they managed to do this. Um, Mencap Gateway Clubs, uh, founded by the, the, the big charity Mencap, so anyone who isn't British, Mencap is, a, is probably the, it is the largest charity for people with uh, learning disability in the UK. They had these activity clubs. Um, they're not all sports clubs. There is a lot of uh, sort of politics around what sports they do play. Uh, but they're very, very important for building up. And there's, there's nearly sort of 700 of these by the 1970s. They're very important for being able to build up this uh, community base for people taking part in activities. And then Special Olympics, which is probably the best known of all the different clubs for people with intellectual disability. Um, the founder in the UK, Chris Maloney, um, tells a beautiful story that I've, I've talked about at, at uh, previous presentations. Um, about very deliberately challenging the idea that one of the, the little brother of one of the people he was teaching to swim couldn't swim because he had Down syndrome and how he actively made it his mission to ensure that he could go and swim. Paul was the boy that he could go and swim, who is front and centre of that picture. Um, all of these organisations are founded with a very deliberate intent to be able to A, integrate people with learning disability into the community, but B, also start to challenge this narrative that it's not healthy or that they can't take part in sport at all. I'm going to give everyone just a minute though um, with this, just to have a quick read through. So this was taken from an interview I did with Ian Harper, who again, we'll talk a little bit further about later, but who is uh, the head of the Special Olympics Athlete Input Council, which I had quite an involvement with. Um, and I'll let everyone have a quick read through of that. So, Swinging back, Lucy, to that, that first question asked, um, for me, Ian has answered my reasons for playing sport, and those are the ones that I've underlined. I, 
I, I have the I'm fortunate enough that I don't have a, a wider political role in, in terms of my own playing of sport. Um, I realise that's that's a privilege, but I predominantly play sport to A, make friends and B, do it because I enjoy it. I think sometimes that gets a little bit lost when we're discussing um, sort of sport on an academic level, but that is absolutely front and centre for those athletes that are involved. Um, I've included some of the rest of the interview just to show a little bit more of the context of it. That this is a very genial interview I had with Ian um, actually at the pub. So we were both about two pints in at this point, uh, hence the chat about hair. But I'm going to come on to the point that he made first off in the second half of my presentation as well, which is this, this idea that he has cheering crowds there and how unusual that is and how important that is. Um, but hopefully most of you would agree with me that actually there is something beautiful about the fact that he can go and feel like he's welcomed and feel that actually it's very normal for him to go to a club, be able to make friends and do something that he genuinely feels that he could enjoy, which wouldn't have been an opportunity that would have been open to him 50 years ago. Um, jumping onto the role of women, um, this is something that I, I have not particularly explored, but have found through the course of uh, my research. Um, it's an area that I'm not particularly qualified necessarily to go and talk at great length about. I want to highlight this. I want to flag this. This is a this is something that needs a proper researcher. This needs someone to come in and look at it. Um, but it's a, an area that is absolutely vital and jumps up and bites you as soon as you look at disability sport. Um, women aren't just there organising the female part of it. They're not just there making tea. They are organising it. They're going out and fighting for it. They are making sure that new organizations are setting up and then running them um, in the case of a few of those names Joyce Robinson I've already talked about Liz Dendy who I interviewed um, is involved in every single level of disability sport is the founder of numerous numerous organizations Sheila Doby is the very first uh, uh, disability officer for a mainstream sport uh, Judith Russell who is fantastic I interviewed as well uh, and is still involved in disability sport uh, similar with Karen Nickel and uh, Eunice Kennedy Shriver is probably the most recognised name on there. Um, I would argue is certainly the most important Kennedy, uh, despite you know her brother being having that sort of shooting incident. Um, I feel that she makes a much more profound and long-term influence, um, and I will happily debate that till the cows come home with anyone. But they, in terms of social change, uh, the the organisation Special Olympics that she sets up is absolutely enormous. Um, exactly why there is a, a very important role and, and historic role of women being involved in charities. Um, women being involved in sports organisation, again, we have some of the experts in this here, so I don't need to elaborate on that anymore. Um, but I feel that it's, it's certainly they're, they're carrying this role of, of women who were previously sort of disenfranchised and left out of um, organising sort of whether it's mainstream sports or politics. Uh, and showing that they're very, very capable of doing it. Um, Judith Russell as well, I think, raised an interesting point, and um, I won't elaborate anymore on what she said there. Um, flicking on then to my, my sort of third point that I wanted to make, which is physical advocacy. Um, hopefully everyone recognises uh, who that is. For our non-British audience, Tony Gray-Thompson is our, or Baroness Tony Gray-Thompson is our greatest Paralympian. And... She sort of is probably the easiest way into to this concept of physical advocacy, which I want to explain. Um, 
She's also, I think, the most iconic and, and important British athlete of the 20th century. Um, there's absolute universal admiration for her now. Um, but as a child, she was labelled as being crippled. She was seen as a second-rate citizen. And she, the fact that she is now in the, the House of Lords, she is one of the most respected people in Britain, comes from her physical excellence. Uh, it doesn't come from her putting numerous very well-founded arguments. It comes from the fact that if you were to wheel or run a marathon against her, she would beat you. That is absolutely unarguable. Um, that gives her the pedestal, which can then be backed up further by being articulate and having a strong personality. But there is something immensely challenging about, to, certainly to uh, uh, masculine sensibility, about having someone being able to beat you at something that you are priding yourself on. It forces you to sit up and listen. Um, in the same way that I would perhaps posture to Lydia that it's much tougher to label a female rugby player as part of the weaker sex if they step you like you're a window dummy and fold you like you're a pocket map. Um, this hasn't always been the case, though, with, with ID sports and ID athletes. Um, they have a much lower visibility. They're no less impressive in some of their performances, but they haven't necessarily been given the opportunity or the pedestal to be able to do it because of not having the high profile competitions like the Paralympics uh, or the London marathons or, or other world marathons to compete in. Um, it's getting there. There are efforts getting there uh, to, to help train up and to help be able to put athletes uh, in these positions. Um, the picture I include there is from the uh, Special Olympics Athlete Leaders Group, which I have all interviewed uh, and was involved with, with supporting for some time. Um, probably the most, uh, the, the one furthest to the fore is Kira Byland, who's there on her bike, who, um, for anyone who's on Strava, her numbers are better than yours. Um, they're certainly better than mine. Um, again, hopefully proving a bit of physical advocacy. Um, but they're getting to a point, I, I bring up Kira because she's now on, uh, on the board of trustees. She's being put into a position where she's able to speak more and more for people with learning disability and for athletes and, and maybe in a position where she can do for people with learning disability what Tanny Gray Thompson has done for people who are users of wheelchairs and, and physically disabled um, but that might be quite a stretch um, the other example I have there that's taken from the 2017 Sheffield Games uh, that was him deadlifting 170 he actually went on to go and lift 200 and the winner lifted 220 kilograms um, if any that's essentially like lifting two of me uh, which is quite difficult um, so again that is someone who 50 years ago would have been put in an institution and labelled as not being useful to society. I would say that this is showing that there's a very big difference uh, from that uh, and a movement from that. Um, my final point then is, is that through this uh, learning of a kind of group language of sport, there is this then ability to, uh, to meet, to mix in. And this is where sort of normalisation and physical advocacy meet, which is this ability to mix in. Um, I've picked two examples from sports here that are notoriously difficult with difficult rules that could be seen as, as quite dangerous as well and would be something that again 50 years ago would have absolutely been a no-no for people with disabilities that were still considered to be in some way less healthy or not able to take part in sport healthily. Um, the photo in the middle is of Matt Dodds who was also in the middle of the photo there of the athlete leaders that is him playing full goo rugby. I've played against him, he's pretty good. Um, you also have the mixed ability rugby uh, over on the left, 
uh, which is a, a way of blending in people who are perhaps older players of rugby and people with disabilities. Uh, and cricket, one of the most notoriously difficult games to explain that is being played by people with disabilities and being played in a mixed environment as well. So let's go back to those three key takeaways. Uh, hopefully I was able to explain a little bit about normalisation and, and just how important sport was uh, for bringing people who had previously been marginalised in society uh, and being able to bring them into a sort of full and, and even almost mixed role in, in society. Uh, and that sport was a, a language that multiple people spoke and was, but, but crucially was somewhere that they were able to uh, be independent, make those conscious choices for themselves and make friends. Um, and finally, this idea of physical advocacy. This is the drum that I'm going to continue to bang, uh, but that through their ability, they're able to increase their status in society. And, and sport is a really, really key place for people with disabilities to be able to do that. Um, I'm going to uh, stop talking there because I know I've hit my 20 minutes. I'm going to leave this open as uh, uh, an area of possible further expansion uh, and my thoughts. But thank you for listening, guys, and happy to field any questions. Thank you very much for that, Tom. That was great. Um, I do. Do we have questions from the floor? Where would Where would we like to start? I've got a question, Lisa. Uh, um, is that okay? Make yourself known in the chat first, Raf. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just broke the rule. Sorry. Okay, you're the chair. You can do what you like. Um, that's really interesting presentation, Tom. Um, I was kind of struck by what you said about that we need to remember that sport isn't necessarily um I, I don't know if this is actually the language you use but that sport isn't necessarily political um that we need to remember that people played sport to make friends um and because they enjoyed it is that an accurate summation of what you said pretty, pretty much yeah i mean the the conscious minds of a lot of people playing sports um uh, certainly again i I've, i'm going to invoke myself here and, and perhaps this is sort of white male privilege that i don't necessarily play it for a political point um but a lot of the athletes I'm speaking to just they want to do it because it's where their friends are. It's because it's fun. Um, I, and I think that actually connects quite nicely with um, Lydia's presentation, because I think that is often something that um, sportswomen would say um, when you try to put it to them that um, there are political connotations of what they're doing. Actually, um, they would say, oh, no, but I'm doing it because it's fun and I enjoy it and, I, and for the friendships. Um, but nonetheless, um, despite those motivations, can we as historians view what they're doing as, as political anyway? And I think that that is actually at the heart of um, the issue that um, Lydia and, and Lisa and myself are, are grappling with as well. I don't know if, if Lydia wanted to come in here, um, but I, I was just kind of, I just think that it's, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, Lydia, if you'd like to, like to respond, then you're very welcome to. <laughs> yeah, no, and I was just typing out in the chat actually but I agree with Tom your the fact that you've labeled it as a conscious mind I haven't heard that terminology before I think that's going to be really useful for me going forward because it is this idea that sport is more than a game like as as academics we're looking at it but how much is it more than a game for the participants and it's really nice actually kind of tying back into what Prashant was saying yesterday to think about what's going on on the pitch and why the people are there on the pitch. And I think that's what you were highlighting is that these people are playing it because they want to, because we, we want to have friends and we want to do the nice things that sport gives us. And, and I think um, I, I think you can, uh, certainly in my area, there is 
it is very discernible that there are people out there who are very deliberately setting things up to change people's minds to to, to use physical advocacy but that's often the organizers um the the vast majority of people who are playing it are playing it because they want to play it because it's fun because it's what they do it's because where their friends are um and I mean, I still see it, I think, a bit with the Paralympic movement where they sort of rather over-egged the pudding on on how much social change it's causing and, um, you know, it being used as a battering ram to alter public perceptions and things like that, which is true to an extent. But, um, you know, that's often very uh, a very limited amount of the organisers who are um, really interpreting it in that sort of very political way, whereas for me, the vast body of people playing it um, you know, aren't doing it to to for that for that kind of role. It's it's because they enjoy it. There's um I'd like to I'm gonna exert my privilege a little bit here. Um uh, also I'm going to going to use Malcolm as a bit of a shield because he's just chucked into the chat um just to thank you for the emphasis on pleasure and enjoyment um because it's something that we um tend to shy away from. And again I think maybe this connects a bit to what Prashant was talking about last night where we we're almost trained not to talk about the stuff that is so kind of fundamental to what we do. We don't want to uh, betray a love of sport, perhaps, in writing about sport um, for fear that it compromises us, um, which maybe it does, um, but that doesn't mean that we don't feel it. Um, for me, then, I wondered if one of the things that really struck me from what you said was that sport offered an opportunity. I think you said something like for genuine friendship, not just being in the same place as other people. And I was interested uh, whether in the rationale for using sport in institutions, whether you see any uh, intention to develop uh, the kind of things you see, I guess, in in you know the old public schools with muscular Christianity and and those kind of socialisation um, points, or whether I suppose I would see maybe especially if they're marketing the grounds as healthful, that it falls more into this kind of fresh air is good for you generically. Um, I guess whether you see any of the the character building um, socialization stuff applied to sport in this context in the same way that we do in in um, public school sport um yes uh, particularly with some of the the sort of earlier um, sort of care model uh, institutions so um, roughly, very roughly speaking, institutions in the 19th century are there to to care and, and even sort of cure people. And then in the 20th century, you get this kind of eugenic turn and it's much more about control. Mm. Um, he says, summarises his first two chapters in, in sort of two, two sentences. Um, under that care model, it, it, there is a lot more, um, you get patients involved. Um, there's... Uh, so Ellis talks about uh, how getting patients, patients as their term, residents, um, involved in cricket would be a good sign of showing that they were ready to leave, mm, okay. uh, ready to go out. So there certainly is a, a case in that you can pick up in those kind of earlier and those care model institutions. Once you start getting um, a bit more discussion about eugenics and about them being for the kind of the confinement of people, particularly between between interwars, um, you get you get less of that dialogue and that discussion, which isn't to mean that it isn't there and isn't still the same people doing the same sport for the same reason. But what's externally projected from it, it isn't necessarily, uh, you know, oh, we had a fantastic time playing sport. It's it's more. Um, 
they played sports so they were tired so they're not going to run amok around the, the town and, and scare people i mean so not entirely similar from boarding school then but fair enough <laughs> huge similarities uh i i think but yeah um i i would like to invite matt mcdowell to ask a question matt if you're there well thanks very much lisa and thanks very much tom excellent talk as ever um my question there's two kind of interrelated questions there because it is very striking that one one slide you put up basically of all women being the organizers and the such is that reflective of childcare arrangements and the next question on top of the back of that if we're talking about Eunice Kennedy Shriver and the such are there also questions about class in the background that need to be addressed thank you to deal with class firstly, I think yes, I think Noblesse Oblige does come in a bit um, and for some of these women there is a sense that they are, um, certainly with the, 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 the kind of history of women helping with charities, they're very much sort of upper class women um, helping out with noble causes. Um, Joyce Robinson is, is middle class, uh, Judith Russell was middle class, Karen Nichol would certainly uh, not allow you to describe her as anything above middle class, uh, we'd probably describe herself as working class. Um, I think it's solidly sort of middle class, this organisation in in, uh, in Britain, um, but I do think that there's, uh, it isn't uh, sort of noblesse oblige in the same way that it is with, with Kennedy Shriver, um, to, to address that. Um, on childcare arrangements, yes, slightly um that that certainly does come into it um and judith mentioned and, and talks about uh in our interview about how it, there is a link with the care sector um i did though still find that it was unusually high and, and actually um that you know if it was if it was just that kind of care arrangement then you might expect that it would be mums bringing uh, sons or daughters to a club but you would get these women involved in, in setting it up. And, um, you know, Robinson didn't have a child of her own to, to, that she was setting up for. She was doing it because it was the right thing to do. Um, same actually with Dendy, same with, I believe, with Dobie, same with Russell, uh, same with Nicol. Um, you do see a lot of these clubs that are, are founded by mums, but very often they're not necessarily sports clubs. You will get uh, dance clubs, drama clubs, and, and that's a whole unexplored side. The, the other aspects of recreation uh, do run alongside this. They are important. It's not that sport is the only thing being organised, um, but that would take me another whole thesis to, to talk about further. Um, I'm going to have to interrupt you, Tom, I'm afraid, because our, our time is well and truly up. Um, thank you for, sorry, unless you unless there was one more point you wanted to make. So. There's a few questions on that. I'll, I'll try and reply to people privately, if that's all right, of the questions. Yeah, was, uh, I was going to say, uh, there are some that are quite, and I think generally they're quite specific actually to people's own research. So if you had time to look at those, um, that would be great. And I'm sorry to people that had questions that I didn't call on, um, just, um, just out of time as ever. Um, but thank you again, Tom. Um, and, uh, and to the room for, again, for some more interesting discussion. So next up, uh, last but by no means least, uh, we have Jan Decon, who is um, who is 
already on the screen share, which is most efficient of him. Um, so Dr. Jan de Comte is, um, his PhD actually was in American studies, but is now an associate professor of sport history at the University of Franche-Comté. Um, and is particularly interested in representations of sport in popular culture and how these might intersect with representations of gender and of race. And as you can see on the screen, then um, often using uh, sources like video games and manga to explore those those questions. Um, so Jan, if I can, uh, I think if I can just hand over to you and we can we can get going. Sure. Thank you so much, Lisa. Um, I'm really talkative and I have a ton of material, so I should get started right now. Um, so on October uh, 21st, 1964, uh, Japan's, uh, Japan's women's volleyball team defeated the USSR in the Olympics in Tokyo. Uh, the team was nicknamed the, the Oriental Witches and it embodied uh, Bushido and Japan's ethos at a particular time in history. And then some 20 years later, uh, manga readers and animated series watchers discovered Attacker You, um, uh, which told the adventures of a young volleyball player, uh, You, dominating women's volleyball on her way to the 1988 Olympics. Uh, then You became Mila, and then you had um, in Italy uh, a series entitled Mila e Shiro. And then You became Jeanne. And the series was translated in, into French and became Jeanne et Serge. It was broadcast on French national public television. And the manga basically originated a volleyball boom in France, which was quite impressive. Uh, and, but beyond that, this manga, along with other hits, such as Captain Tsubasa, uh, which was about um, uh, soccer, and it was named Oliveton in French. Uh, these mangas turned sports into an educational tool to teach moral values, but also set gendered ideals. Um, so mangas are discourse turned into stories and images and in regards to their popularity and impact both in Japan and France, it seems relevant to explore these stories and images to recapture the discourse they carry and uh, the messages they convey. Um, so this research, this research is in its early stages. I'm working with my colleagues, Professor Christian Vivier and Dr. Sébastien Lafage-Cosnier, um, on these issues and um, we try to explore manga and animated series um, both in Japanese and French in order to study the representation of athletic femininity in both instances and uh, the potential impact on readers globally. Uh, it's in the continuity with uh, what my colleagues have done with other with comic books, for example Asterix, Tintin or Martin. Um, and the idea is to study the representation of sports in texts and images to capture the discourses developed uh, by these cultural artifacts, uh, along with showing the relevance of studying these artifacts as worthy historical primary sources. Um, so this presentation tackles attacker you as edutainment and cultural tool for identifying, sorry, ideals of Japanese culture set for itself. And it opens up on the impact of this production on French uh, audiences and the French youth and the way they approach gender in relation to sports. Um, also, Attacker You allows to study representation of the Olympics uh, in sports manga and animated series, as well as the heritage of the Olympics and the production of cultural artifact, uh, artifacts. Uh, indeed, Attacker You seems to promote the Olympics and women's sports in general, uh, yet the portrayal of both these elements, several, uh, um, sorry, both these elements raises several issues in regards to gender, education, culture, and politics. 
and the messages uh, seems to vary from one country and one culture to the other. So that's what we are going to explore. So here's the question I would ask, to which extent does representation of um, athletes and gender in Atakayu and Janet Serge reflect different cultural needs and shape the construct of gender ideals in, in Japan and France? Um, um, basically, uh, the study is based on the analysis of the incubator uh, of the, the animated series, uh, so the first five episodes um, of Attacker You and Jani Serge, and it focuses on um, uh, the discourse developed in them through images and text. And I also studied and compared the original, uh, the original opening credits and songs of both versions. Uh, and you'll see it's pretty interesting to see the differences between the two. Um, also, in order to add context, I've studied other animated series and mangas, which were all successful in France, uh, mainly on television, but also sometimes in books in mangas. Um, so, the, in the different cases, you have uh, Ikari no Denzetsu, which is about um, a young gymnast uh, aiming for the Olympics, uh, so another woman athlete. You have Captain Tsubasa, Olivier Tom, starring a young boy, which was a huge hit in France, as well as Jeanne Serge was, so just as Jeanne Serge was, was at the time. Uh, you have L'Ecole des Champions, which is basically the carbon copy, the European carbon copy of Captain Tsubasa. Um, you have IQ, which is another manga about volleyball, but this time starring and featuring a, a male athlete, a young male athlete. And so comparing Jeanne Serge or Atakuyu and IQ is quite interesting. Uh, beach Stars, uh, which is a manga on uh, women's beach volleyball, and two recent mangas on women's soccer. So the idea was always to compare uh, things which were featuring male athletes or women athletes and see the difference in representation of gender uh, in these uh, cultural artifacts. Uh, so first, first off, uh, attacker use story and significance are deeply linked with the Olympics as the games are set as the ideal to reach and prepare for, just like they inspired the creators of the series. Um, so Atakayu is Olympic heritage in itself. It was inspired by the 1964 Olympics uh, and the 1964 Olympic team of Japan, uh, Japan's volleyball, uh, which had a tremendous in, uh, impact on Japanese artists. Uh, it, argue, it arguably triggered the rise of the production of mangas dedicated to women's volleyball. And as the real team kept on succeeding on the court, a true tradition of women's volleyball rose on the field of representation. So here is um, a snapshot of the different mangas that were released uh, at the time. Right after the 1964 Olympics, you have all these mangas. And then in 1984, you have Takayu, both the manga and the animated series. And then you have all the mangas about uh, women's volleyball. Uh, also other mangas that would turn into uh, tele uh, um, television drama. And another one that actually became um, theater play. So all this is quite interesting. And as you can see, you have really a parallel between the Olympics and what happens at, at the Olympics for Japan and the rise of the production of uh, mangas dedicated to women's volleyball. Um, also, uh, Atakayu itself set the 1988 games as horizon and goal for you, but also for the country, basically. Uh, plus, uh, Yu's mother, um, who is featured on the image on the left, um, uh, Kyushi Tajima, won gold in 1964 
So the character, the virtual character, the mother of you won the 1964 Olympics. And so you have a whole generational thing here with the mother inspiring uh, the, uh, the young girl who is now uh, learning how to play volleyball. And then in 2008, also you have um, another version, new Attacker You, which was released, but it wasn't released in France. So this is why I did not study it particularly, but it's quite significant to see how it was released in 2008 prior to the Olympics. Um, and so, uh, so Attacker You was deeply tied with the Olympics and some kind of Olympic tradition uh, for Japan's volleyball, uh, women's volleyball. And so also in France, you helped create interest in volleyball as Pascal Dure showed in his book, uh, in the wake of the broadcasting of the series on French national public television, four times more boys and 6.5 times more girls registered to play volleyball in clubs in 1988 compared to 1978. So it really originated a volleyball boom in France. It became really popular, um, both in schools, uh, in physical education, in B classes, but also in clubs. Uh, also, uh, it led to the broadcasting of other series like Les Attaquants in 1988 and Smash in 1989 in France. Um, also, what's interesting is that when you compare the Japanese and French version of the animated series, you can notice that, you are, um, that the two series developed two different if in, re in relation to the Olympics. Like uh, the Japanese version shows the long road to victory, the effort, how you have to really struggle and work hard to win. And the goal is to win the Olympics. Whereas in the French version, um, you have like, you is kind of a more Coubertinian figure. And she's like, oh, let's play and have fun and uh, let's work together and it's fine. And she actually also, she's angry at her coach because he's lacking psychology. Uh, because he's too tough on the players. So the French version is totally different. The narrative is, uh, is totally different from the Japanese version uh, and draws the emphasis on trying more than winning. So there are two views on the, on the Olympics here. You have the Olympics as a stage to prove oneself as an athlete, a team, and a nation, um, and one as something fun to take part in. Um, also, you have um, several athletes have designated the series as a source of inspiration, both in Japan, Italy, or France. Uh, but the jump from imagination to real athletic success did not really happen, uh, if you take a look at the results. Uh, but still, uh, as Dure shows, Attacker You shows an Olympic hero. You is a hero. And as well as a virtual gendered role model. So that's the, the, the main point here. One of the main points is, is that you have more representation of women athletes through Attacker U, but we need to assess this representation. And what Attacker U shows is both progress and recurring frames. Um, so first of all, uh, in manga in general, um, sports mangas open a kind of space in between. Women in sports mangas um, are different than women characters in shoujo manga, which are manga for girls and uh, which are totally stereotyped. Um, so in sports mangas, women are framed, don't get me wrong. Um, they play the part of the manager male, male athletes fall in love with, or the super fan of the male character. In the case of women athletes, they choose to play a sport to get closer to the boy they are in love with, etc. So they are framed. But in the same time, their portrayal is subtler than that. They are sensitive yet strong, very strong. They care about boys, yet they want to show that they can be stronger than them and beat them on the court. 
uh, they are sexualized, and yet they are true athletes, just like men athletes. And they are portrayed as strong, athletic, determined, willing to play through pain. They embody the same values as men athletes, and they consider sport as martial arts. Uh, so that's pretty interesting. Even in volleyball, volleyball is taken as a martial arts sport, uh, even in the case of women's volleyball. However, there's always some kind of love stories, some kind of erotization of the athletic performances, and they need male figures as mentors to succeed. Uh, so when you take a look at, uh, as, uh, at you in, uh, specifically, she was already kind of revolutionary in the 1984. She was really confident, outgoing, as strong as male players, unapologetic, and she stood up to patriarchy, her father and her coach. Um, she symbolizes the evolving status of women in Japanese society at the time, as highlighted by sociologists Anne Garrig and Veronica Chambers. And there was a movement towards uh, women's emancipation in Japan at the time, which went through popular culture as well, and Ataka used a reflection of that. Um, so it can be seen as a tool for emancipation, yet still, uh, you was in love with Shiro and she was playing volleyball to get close to him and she was cheering for him all the time, etc. So, um, but that way in Japan, she can embody the feminine ideal of Bushido as she is both a housekeeper and Amazon in the words of Inazo Minitobe. So you have that basically um, women are taught uh, Bushido, just like men, but with different purposes. Yeah, they are taught to be strong, to defend their household, uh, to defend their, uh, their house uh, and their family, while men sac uh, sacrifice for their country or their master, so higher purposes. You see the difference here. Um, also, what's interesting is While the manga was drawn by a woman, Jun Makimura, who used the shoujo aesthetics, it was written by Koizumi Shizuo, who also created the animated series and was overwhelmingly surrounded by males. So you have kind of also the male gaze reflected here. And um, um, so you see that it's both fighting stereotypes while re reinforcing them. Should be playing because I'm way too talkative. Um, but still, uh, sports mangas is a man's world. And um, uh, Serge is the main character, or Shio is the main character, and he's here to prove his manliness, and uh, Yu is here on the picture, basically, on the bench, if, uh, if you want to see, uh, when, when, uh, we'll see that uh, in the song, in the lyrics. And if you take a look at Captain Tsubasa or L'Ecole des Champions, the representation of boys and girls is really stereotyped. Boys are naturally gifted, winners, etc., while girls are cheerleaders, potential girlfriends, etc. And even if you take a look at more recent mangas like IQ, so it's like 20, 30 years later, um, you still have this dichotomy between boys and girls, and boys are still the naturally gifted athletes, even though the representation is way more subtle, but don't get started on this. Um, uh, and when you take a look at uh, um, women's soccer, you have two great representations, more recent, in which, for example, seven-hour football, women's, uh, women's um, Women's soccer is way more revolutionary, you know. Um, Nozomi, the heroine, is a revolutionary figure and she, really, she actually screams, revolution! And she wants to take over the field. Uh, whereas, when you take a look at my ball, which was released right after that, it's terrible in terms of stereotypes. So you, you see that more representation is not necessarily good and that you really need to assess the content. Um, so let's move on. Um, also, you have issues, uh, if you take a look at Jeanne Serge now and comparing the two, 
uh, Attacker U and Genesis. First of all, Attacker U made Japan cool before it was cool. It was really cool in France. And so um, you have a striking contrast uh, between, um, uh, for example, the, the coverage of Sports Illustrated and the 1964 Olympic team, uh, in which they talk about the abusive coach uh, of, the, of the team, so a really negative portrayal of, of the Japanese team. And then you have uh, Jeanne et Serge celebrating this team, this, this former generation and the new generation and uh, women's, uh, Japanese women's volleyball. So uh, it's interesting to see that uh, Jeanne uh, wins on the volleyball court, but also in the collective imagination. Um, and then when you take a look at the translation, you see ethnocentrism and sexism all the way. Um, um, Joël Noué-Roseman talked about how manga can be seen as some tool for invisible Japanese colonization, um, which is interesting. However, Attacker You and its French version, Janet Serge, convey different messages. The French edited version itself, made out of the Italian edited one, mostly retained the Japanese ethos, but uh, and in the same time, fantasies, nudity, and educational violence, violence, which is part of a Japanese manga, was edited out. So it's more French kid-friendly, if you see. Um, also, uh, the portrayal of, of the, the, women, the woman athlete is totally different. Yu was more of a revolutionary figure contesting male hegemony, while Jeanne is way more into Serge, actually. Uh, that's the, the, the whole point here. So through editing and dubbing, the French broadcasters euphemized use revolutionary dimension. And the differences are quite striking when you take a look at dialogues. So you see that you have way more elements here on the, on the right. Uh, she's more infantilized and sexualized, etc. Serge is way more important in the French version. When you take a look at dialogues here, um, what's interesting is... Um, uh, you see the, the results of the different dialogues. You have infantilization, trivialization, uh, the, the Jeanne because, uh, beco becomes a less empowering and threatening figure. Uh, she's sexualized, etc. So if you take a look at the dialogues, things totally change and the messages are totally different. Uh, and this is what happens from, from Japanese to French. Uh, you have um, uh, symbolic male superiority, Passive women, active men, etc., insisted on women's misses and lack of competitiveness, asymmetrical gender marking, fertilization, sexualization. Um, if you take a look at the opening credits, uh, really quickly, um, uh, the Japanese one, Attacker You. You see, what do you see? You see, uh, you play sport as an equal to Shiro. She practices and plays really, really hard, and she brings the Olympic gold to Japan. Uh, and there are also elements of sorority, actually. Uh, we have uh, Nami, uh, she's a rival at, the first, at, uh, at first, and then they become friends and they, uh, they become allies and they work together to, to win the Olympics. Uh, but in the French version, it's totally different. Um, the opening credits shows Jeanne uh, playing volleyball as well, but mostly with a smile. She is in love with Serge, we understand that. And she's looking up to him, even on the volleyball courts. Uh, or cheering for him as a passive girlfriend, cheerleader, or even television viewer. Um, so the Japanese version is way more sports-related, um, uh, and the French version represents a more passive gen while giving way more importance to Serge. Um, uh, and these are the two summaries of the two opening credits, the two horizons that are set for the Japanese girls or the French girls. Uh, on the left, you have Japan, 
uh, the horizon is winning the goal at the Olympics, and on the left, the goal is getting the boy. Um, and if you take a look at the, the, the men, uh, at men's mangas and uh, animated series, the narrative is totally different. It's 100% sport, 100% sport. Um, totally sports related, no romance basically whatsoever, and female characters invi uh, invisible mainly. Uh, and then, well, uh, I'll skip that, but just to show you that even in images, uh, basically the French images are the only ones showing, showing the male character. Um, and then we take a look at the songs. The, uh, what's interesting is that the Japanese version of the song is also about love, but the rhythm of the song and the intensity of the opening credits makes it way more empowering, whereas the French, the French song is really cheesy, uh, kid stuff. Anyway, it's re reinforcing actually the stereotypical representation of uh, the, uh, the manga. Let's move on to this uh, last idea. What's interesting is that now kids in France are watching mangas in their original version with French subtitles. So the representation of Japanese culture is direct. And so uh, the French editors cannot tweak messages. And so now you have more power, more critical power for the Japanese uh, the Japanese soft power. The Japanese soft power is more efficient in France now because of that. Um, and it's interesting that it's set because uh, you can see the rise of um, uh, global gendered representation and gendered ideals. Uh, so to conclude, um, 21st century popular culture is a global phenomenon now and it raises some issues regarding its impact and influence. And in manga, the, the power struggle is, so, is even more subtle than, it, than soft, it's smooth, it's smooth power. Uh, Robert Gee underlined how fictional heroes could inspire change as they stood as symbols of change and for change. And to some extent, you was uh, a symbol of change and for change at the time in Japan. However, that's what the series taught the kids in Jap Japanese or French needs to be assessed. And uh, Atakuyu went from promoting the Olympic dream to teach some ideal femininity both contributing to women's emancipation on the field of symbols and also reinforcing their symbolic oppression. In France, this oppression was made even more radical through editing and dubbing, which allowed to redefine the discourse. So do sports mangas uh, free or frame the youth? That's the question. And actually they do both, of course. Uh, they convey stereotype representations of women athletes while moving toward contesting male hegemony through the representation of in-between threatening figures um, you was threatening to Japanese masculinity and Jeanne was made less threatening to French masculinity. While emancipation can happen through or be reflected in popular culture, manga seems to be bringing as much liberation as it produces docile controlled bodies, as we could say. Uh, sports mangas are part of a system which keeps the youth's bodies disciplined, framed and gendered while freeing them in the same time. Uh, and okay, Dan, I'm, going to, I'm going to have to interrupt you. If you want, oh, if you want to make one more point, I'll allow you one more point. But um, we are, I'm going to have to hold you to time a little bit. So if you, if you, uh, if you want to, um, yeah. Feel no, free I, to I, I, just wanted, I just wanted to finish on the, the two examples on the right, which are actually um, mangas um, written by French authors in which the gender representations are way less stereotyped. So that's interesting that they took the code of Japanese manga and they recreated new manga, but less stereotyped. And so this is about the whole discussion about global gender ideals and how they can be redefined from one country to the other, even though everything's shared now.
Thank you so much. I'm sorry. I talk, I'm talkative. I told you. <laughs> I, I love that you're talkative, Jan. I feel like we've just covered about five hours of content. In <laughs> my brain is, my little brain is struggling to keep up. Um, but it is, um, it's a very stimulated brain right now. Um, while I digest that, I know Lydia has a question. So I'm going to start with, with Lydia. I should say thank you very much for, for genuinely a very, very stimulating presentation. Um, Lydia, over to you for a sec. Thanks. And thanks, Jan. That was really, really interesting. And actually just picking up on your very last point there was my question. Um, to what extent do you feel that these gender differences reflect a difference in the gender norms in French society and Japanese society? I think as Western sports historians, we can be quite quick to globalise our Western ideals of mm -hmm. the gender binary. And perhaps that isn't necessarily the case in different cultures. Well, thank you for this question. It's tremendously important because at first when we started studying manga, the representation of women in sports mangas was really, really stereotypical to us. But if you take a look at really Japanese culture and history and etc., you can see that it's tremendously revolutionary, actually, um, to some extent. And for example, if you take a look at Bushido, you understand a little more how they're portrayed as so tough and so willing to play through pain, etc., etc. Um, what's interesting is that how the, how the French are trying to recapture that and redefine that, how they did it in the 1980s and 1990s, how they tried to actually recapture this representation and made, uh, make a new representation more fit uh, to their own ideals, gendered ideals, and that um, actually the French have portrayed themselves as more liberal to some extent, but in, but in this particular case, actually, when you study really properly and with cultural backgrounds, you can see that actually it's way more about um, male hegemony in the French version. And it's fascinating because Jeanne Serge was portrayed as kind of liberal, but it wasn't actually. When you take a look at the original, the original version, the narrative is totally different. And this is why when the DVD was released and when I watched the, the, the original version that was accessible for the first time, Wow, when you see the difference, the difference in dialogues, the dialogues, it's, 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 it's amazing. I'll try to show you the dialogues while I'm, I'm talking, but um, even in tiny details, like uh, when, when she calls, uh, um, in French, she says, um, uh, she says daddy, when in Japanese, she talks about the whole man. And just this tiny detail changes the, the, the relationship between daughters and fathers and how male, like the patriarchy is established as so strong in the European version, whereas in the Japanese version, it's like, um, it's a reflection of, of how you had this revolution in terms of women's emancipation from the 1970s that was realized and made it to manga through Otake U. Can I just ask a very quick, and it does need to be very quick because I've promised a question to, to someone else in the room, but just from what you said, I, this slide in particular, I was trying to digest as it was on the screen. So I'm glad it's back up again. Um, and I wonder um, to what extent there's meanings embedded in the Japanese language that maybe we don't, um, so like the old man and daddy, for example, whether there are meanings attached to the Japanese language that perhaps we might not be attuned to. Um, I don't know uh, um, how much, how, how um, does that question make sense? Sorry. Uh, yeah, totally. Actually, there's something that I didn't have enough time to, to, to tell you, but, <laughs> but, um, um, Japanese mangas are about, uh, it's 
how do I say that? It's about the hit and superego of the nation. So you, have, you will have ideals, the ideals that are set for the nation, but you are, you'll have also kind of a catharsis uh, showing characters that are totally uh, the, the hit of the nation, the, the opposite of the superego. And uh, this is why you will have a lot of comic relief uh, through um, this kind of uh, words, like calling your father the, uh, the old man or making fun of somebody, etc. Or even nudity is, is turned into comic relief, etc. So um, you have specificities linked to the cultural aspects here, of course. Yeah. But still, when you see the, the jump from one language to the other, you can also see how the other culture is trying to recapture this and redefine it to, to own it. Um, yeah, I'm sure I, I see that through what, how you've explained it to us. I, yeah, I enjoy how you've, how you've broken down that kind of cultural translation as well as the linguistic and the visual. It's cool. Um, so Rajiv was asking, where does manga stand in the spectrum of sports literature? So, for example, magazines, books in Japan and France, so, and as accessed both by athletes and by sports followers? Um, so that's, that's a great question. Once again, um, I'm going to talk about France more specifically. Uh, well, manga, manga is really, really accessible in Japan. Like, it's a huge phen cultural phenomenon. It's like uh, every, almost everyday literature uh, there. Uh, and it's cons consumed as such. You know, kids go and read it all the time. It's published. Originally, it's not published in books. It's published in weekly magazines. Uh, and it's also why I've studied only the, the first episodes. It's because to establish uh, their series, the, the authors have to really, right from the start, establish their characters. First five chapters, you, are, you understand the point, because the, the public votes to retain uh, a series from one week to another and to have the, the rest of the stories going. So it's really consumed all the time, and, it's, and uh, there's a, a huge tradition of sports mangas in Japan. Uh, in France, um, you have different ways of consuming sports, uh, especially in relation to the kids and middle school kids, because I've studied the reception of middle school kids uh, more specifically. Uh, uh, manga is pretty popular. An animated series is a huge hit right now for, for middle school kids. And so they consume a lot of animated series. Sport is only part of it because they mainly consume sports, real sports on television, but still they are turning more and more towards manga. So this is also interesting because they are looking at these, um, what, what happens is that now in mangas, in sports mangas, you have more and more common characters, common kids who become superheroes on the court uh, just by working hard. And this is more inspiring to the French kids now than the former mangas in which you have superheroes, super hype, muscular and, and brimming with masculinity and everything in the 1980s. Um, they are uh, like the French, the, 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 the kids, the middle school kids are way more attracted by, by these common kids that become, who become heroes on the field. And so this is why sport mangas is now become more, becoming more and more uh, important in France and consumed. Wow, how interesting. Um, I'm, I'm really sorry, I'm going to have to wrap this up because uh, we're already a little bit over time. Um, I, would, I would love to continue the conversation um, and I hope to be able to do that another day with you, Jan. Um, and likewise with our other speakers um, who at least are in the same country as me. Um, but at the moment, that's kind of academic. Um, thank you so much again to, to Jan, to Tom and to Lydia for such um, interesting presentations and thoughtful discussions. Um, and to and to the room for your for your input as well. I've really um, enjoyed the session and 
got lots to lots to go away thinking about, which is how I like to how I like to Thank you.